0: Tonight is uh, part three of this study that we're going to do for nine weeks in total. So uh, we looked at the age of Jesus and the apostles, and then we talked a little bit last week about the age of Catholic Christianity. By Catholic, we're just referring to that as universal, uh, the idea that uh, now Jew and Gentile have been brought into the body of Christ. Today we start to dip our toe into what is um, maybe more commonly known as uh, Roman Catholic uh, era, and that will continue uh, as we move toward the Reformation. So tonight and next week, we'll talk a little bit about the roots of Roman Catholicism and how it came about. So tonight, what I want us to do is see three big points that will apply to uh, this era from 312 to 590 A.D. And uh, the three points that we're going to look at uh, will include the idea of um, the uh, dominant religion of Christianity and how it came about. So I, in previous weeks, gave you a kind of a picture to associate uh, with this era. So tonight, I want you to just notice here, there's a statue there, um, and there's a coin with the figure of Constantine on it. He will be the central figure and there's the other thing here that's very important uh, that you'll see as a shield. This shield of the, a Roman soldier uh, under Constantine has a symbol of a chi rho. Those are two Greek letters, chi and rho, which are the two uh, first letters in uh, the name Christos or Christ. And I'll explain why they put that symbol on their shields as we get to that. But Constantine, uh, and he's going to be the central person that will kind of move this era forward. So by way of reminder, uh, we have seen over the last two weeks that Christianity started as a small uh, fugitive faction within Judaism. And what I mean by that is Jesus and then later Paul are beginning to reform Judaism, and uh, that ticks off, obviously, uh, those that are in power at the time of Jesus, and later it will uh, run Paul out of town in a number of cities as well. Uh, And yet, the amazing thing about the church is that it did persevere, and as it persisted, it continued to grow. So, what is amazing in this era that we're looking at from 312 to 590 is no longer is this kind of a new and upcoming thing. Soon we will see that Christianity will take over, and out of that will form uh, much of what uh, forms our civilization in the Western Hemisphere uh, under the Judeo-Christian uh, history and influence, and of course, we'll talk about that in a in a number of weeks ahead. But when we think about uh, Constantine, he is the individual uh, that frees uh, the Christians from some of the persecution uh, that they are undergoing. It's an interesting thing that initially the word martyr um, simply meant a witness until some of the persecutions. Came about. And then uh, death in honor of Christ is uh, uh, an additional definition that's associated with the idea of martyr. And so I think all of us maybe have heard of uh, different martyrs. Um, We can't cover everyone in this study, but a fascinating story is a guy by the name of Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp's an early church father who. Uh, there has been things that have been written about him, and if you look that up, you'll find that um, his witness in uh, the arena before a crowd of people is quite, um, quite remarkable, and uh, you have some that stand out. So you have Justin Martyr, you have Polycarp, you have some others that uh, will give their life in honor of Christ. There's also a negative side that we see taking place as Constantine comes to a place where he's going to use Christianity as part of his uh, power in the state and he will make Christianity the state religion in the end. There's some question about whether he is an individual that really had a conversion experience, we'll talk about that in a few slides, but uh, what's important to see is that the church began to see um, a conjoining of the power of the state along with the power of the church, and that will eventually lead to the um, this in this period the uh, uh, the papacy beginning to take place. So. Uh, That will become important, especially in next week's era of time when we talk about the Middle Ages. But uh, for tonight, I want to lead into Constantine by taking a look at uh, just a couple things about some of the imperial persecutions. I think sometimes when we think about uh, people who gave their life in martyrdom for the sake of Christ, um, we think that it was kind of an empire-wide type of thing. That wasn't the case initially. Uh, Persecutions uh, kind of ebbed and flowed. Persecutions were sometimes isolated into different areas. Um, I think what we begin to see, though, as we move toward um, the latter part of uh, this era, there is a great persecution that will come under a guy by the name of Diocletian. He's the third one mentioned on this slide down at the bottom there. And what I think happens, as you can see here, there's three points that are made in terms of why there's some imperial persecution directed toward uh, the Christians is, number one, some of the superstition uh, that began to be associated Uh, with some of the disasters and some of the troubles that were occurring within the Roman Empire. So if you refuse to worship the gods of the Romans, uh, then there was the belief that those gods would bring different types of disasters. And against that background, what we find is that the Roman Empire, for all the unity that it had under the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, There was a dissolving uh, that began to take place. There was some breakaway states that began to move away. And then finally, the threat of the barbarian invasions uh, that were on the horizon. And a lot of those things, I think, began to be associated with we didn't have these problems until these Christians came along. And so if we can get rid of the Christians, then things will go back to normal and status quo will uh, once again come about. So it, in these four names here, Decius, Valerian, Diocletian, and Galerius, Diocletian is the worst um, in early church history in bringing persecution against the Christians. He had a lieutenant here by the name of Galerius uh, that also kind of carried on his policies after Diocletian uh, became ill and uh, uh, he abdicated the throne, and Galerius took over uh, and continued that until he himself got sick as well. So under Diocletian, uh, it was called the Great Persecution, and this is the time I think most of us associate with early uh, Christian martyrdom. Uh, It is one of the of uh, the last persecutions, but the others were kind of ebb and flow, uh, fits and starts type thing. Uh, here Diocletian is is gonna bring an opposition against the Christians um because of something that happened after he visited one of the prophets of one of the gods that he worshipped. Now, let me rewind for a second. Last week, we talked about the persecution under Nero, and Nero in 64 AD blamed the Christians for the fire in Rome, although uh, a lot of historians of the time believe that Nero himself uh, set the city on fire to clear out an area to kind of refab Rome and architecturally make it the way he wanted it. Here, Diocletian is has been on a a military campaign over a number of years. And here we begin to see a little bit more of that emperor worship, where there's the demand now that you kneel before the emperor, that you kiss the hem of his robes. Uh, All of these things are to increase the power and authority of his office so that he can continue to win some of these military campaigns that he's involved in. And under Diocletian, you could see here that the emperor became kind of godlike. Now, that's not not a new thing. You can go all the way back to Julius Caesar. You can go back to Caesar Augustus. There is always this kind of status of kind of a godlike figure but under Diocletian, at least that's an excuse that was being used to uh, bring persecution against the Christians because they refused to recognize him as Lord and Savior. Uh, and a lot of that language in the first three centuries was common, not just in Christianity, Lord and Savior, but that was applied to some of the emperors as well. Um, Diocletian was a devoted pagan worshiper of some of the Roman gods, and he really for a while didn't pay a lot of attention uh, to the growth of Christianity uh, until he made a visit to a prophet um, of the uh, god Apollo, and he was going to receive some type of divine oracle And this prophet told him that the presence of the Christians in the empire are rendering the gods quiet or silent because there's different people that are beginning to convert and they're becoming Christians and that type of thing. So uh, Diocletian uh, becomes afraid of that, and he wonders whether or not he will be able to hold on to power, especially in light of the military campaigns here you see an artist's rendition of Diocletian in one of the battles um, done by an artist. So this is called the Great Persecution. It is um, the one that I think a lot of us associate with early uh, Christian persecution. But that really is, you have to say that with a little bit of disclaimer because the other persecutions were not empire-wide. So under Diocletian, you do have Christians that are being put to death. What's fascinating about this, though, and it was true even before Diocletian, if Christians would um, renounce their faith, then the punishment would be lifted. So it's not really something that they have done against the law, where they're going to be punished no matter what. It's that if they renounce their faith, then they can go about their life. Well, what you find under Diocletian is he has more of a resolve uh, to wipe out this foreign presence of people that are worshiping Jesus, and he wants to win back basically the favor of the gods that he worshiped. So what happens is this time when people, if they hadn't lost their life, sometimes they lost their jobs. Uh, They lost a way of feeding their family. They went into debt. All kinds of different things like that uh, are taking place. Diocletian will become very ill. And he decides that he's going to step away from the throne. And he has this lieutenant by the name of Galerius, who is just as ferocious as he is. And uh, he will imprison, torture, kill. And he did some other things as well. He even desecrated uh, some of the tombs of the martyrs of the faith that had been before He destroyed some of the churches that, uh, or at least meeting places, uh, that uh, Christians were using for worship, and whatever Christian texts um, they did have, he began to burn them. So uh, last week, we didn't uh, look at those last couple of slides where the church is starting to collect different scrolls and copy them and stuff like that. Here's one of the reasons why we don't have a lot of scrolls that go all the way back to the time in which they are written. Uh, some of these uh, persecutions have destroyed some of these scrolls, so they need to continue to be uh, copied, which places them at a later date uh, than uh, when they were written earlier. So um, when you hear that uh, some of these scrolls you know, are sometimes 100 years later, 150 years later, um, some of this might have to do with uh, people hiding the scrolls, uh, like the Essenes did with the Old Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, some of it has to do with uh, people taking them, burning them, those type of things as well. So in the winter of 312 AD, the persecution will cease upon the death of Galerius, Um, and then there's a struggle for power, and that's where Constantine is going to step in and fill that void, but more about him in a moment. Um, What's important to know here is that Christians that were put to death uh, were put to death um, out of superstition, out of using a group of people as a scapegoat for uh, what's gone wrong in the empire, that type of thing. So let me stop there before we talk about Constantine. Do you have any questions, comments, anything I can clarify? Okay. All right. So Constantine. Well, let me let me show you a couple of pictures before I talk about Constantine. So back in two thousand um uh, in thirteen. Estee and I uh, went to Croatia, and one of the places uh, that we visited uh, while we were in Croatia was Diocletian's Summer Palace, which is in Split, Croatia. And this is a picture that I took of the outside of the remains of that palace. It's quite huge. It uh, let me show you another picture. Uh, It is absolutely breathtaking. And uh, you go inside and you see a lot of uh, uh, different things that uh, they used. You see everything from fireplaces to holes in the in the floor that they used uh, for sanitary purposes that went down to the bottom level, all kinds of different things like that. Um, the you know, they restage some of the stuff there. There was uh, people dressed up kind of like Roman soldiers were wearing uh, some of the uniforms and that type of thing. So um, this is amazing because it backs up right to the sea. And one of the reasons he built this palace there is if there were invaders that were going to come uh, and, and get him, he had a way to get away by boat uh, out the backside of the palace. So it was just fascinating. And, um, you know, um, it, was, it was real privilege to see it. You have any thoughts, comments? All right, so let's talk about Constantine for a moment. So Constantine uh, was the son of a guy by the name of, uh, Constantius, and he became kind of the Caesar of the West in 293. Now, Rome will split between the East and the West as a way of governing the empire. When uh, Constantius dies in 306, um, he is on a military campaign in Britain with his son. Um, uh, he will find we will find that he, uh, after he dies, uh, Constantine will take over. Now, <clears throat> remember that the Roman Empire goes all the way from Britain down to India. I mean, massive empire. So you can understand probably the troubles uh, that uh, come along with trying to govern that big of an empire. So you had people in place uh, in different uh, areas of it. Well, where that takes place, and then you have a vacuum of power, civil war sometimes ensues. And um, so what happens is Constantine Uh, who is given uh, the authority to rule the West, uh, meets his brother-in-law by the name of Maxentius, who rules the East, and they have a famous battle at the Mulvian Bridge, uh, which is near Rome, in 312. What's fascinating about this particular event is... um, that Maxentius destroyed all the bridges except this one, thinking that it was a good military scheme. And what he found is he had no way to escape uh, because of this one bridge. So when Constantine uh, met him in battle, they got backed up and most of the army, including uh, Maxentius himself, drowned in the river because there was no way for them to retreat. So just a lot of interesting side notes. But at that point, um, Constantine is going to kind of take over the Roman Empire. But what's fascinating here is um, how he associates his victory in battle with Christianity. So there's a couple things you see over here on the screen. So two things. The top one, I mentioned a moment ago, you see a picture of a Roman soldier, and on the shield there are two letters, chi and ro, two Greek letters, that um, are the first two letters of Christos. But the other thing, and we don't know if this is something that actually um, happened, or if this is part of the urban lore of it, um, part of what is said is that, uh, Constantine saw a cross, um, on the battlefield in the sky, and he has this vision, and it, and there is these, uh, this, um, mantra that's associated with it, uh, by this you shall, uh, achieve victory, uh, so what he does is he goes into battle, uh, having this, uh this first of all this this emblem or symbol and then he has this vision that says that by the cross you shall win so these two things leads him to think that it is Christ that gave him this victory and because Christ gave him this victory he decides that he's going to base his entire uh, rule upon Christianity. So what was once persecuted, uh, where Christians have lost their life, now becomes the state religion. And as it becomes the state religion, you can see all kinds of problems that will come along with this. The first thing that Constantine does uh, as he takes on Christianity as kind of his emblem... of of rule, is he issues what is called the Edict of Milan. Now, this is in Milan, Italy, and it's in February of 313 AD, where there is an agreement uh, that Christians will be treated benevolently within the Roman Empire. No one is allowed to persecute Christians anymore. So here you see Constantine and another uh, ruler by the uh, name of Licinius, who controlled a different uh, part, the Balkans, and uh, and and some other areas. They make this ag- agreement that uh, together uh, they won't allow Christians to be mistreated or scapegoated or blamed. So uh, what we find is that. Uh, it, the empire still divided a little bit uh uh constantine has taken over max uh Sentius's territory um but after in 325 um or 324 rather um licentius is defeated and now everything is consolidated um both east and west and everything under it um and what we're beginning to see is Constantine's convictions, is that he's going to associate um, his rule with Christianity alone, and a lot of that will uh, shift loyalties from paganism uh, to uh, Christianity. And he's going to do a couple other things that's quite interesting. He's going to, first of all, have the first ecumenical council to try to resolve some theological differences that is still splitting the empire apart. Uh, I'll mention that in a moment. And then in 330, he actually moves the seat of his government uh, to Asia Minor from Rome uh, to the ancient city of Byzantium, which is uh, Constantinople. So he renames the city after himself. And, um, this is kind of pictured as the New Rome, and it is seen as exclusively devoted to Christ. This will play out in the history of the church that the church is going to also split between East and west. Uh, and and the East will become kind of Eastern Orthodox in its uh, outlook, and the West Roman Catholic. So, Uh, Just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we move ahead. Do you have some thoughts, some questions, any comments? So here's the effect of Constantine. Um, I think it's critical, as you see there, that um, this change in leadership style had a profound effect upon the church. And most Christians in that day would think of it very favorably because they were once persecuted and now they are being pampered to a certain extent. Um, The church historian by the name of Eusebius uh, spoke for most Christians when he thought of the emperor Constantine as the ideal Christian ruler and um, beginning, and he is beginning kind of a new age of salvation uh, because now Christians are in a place where they are recognized and they will later start to assume some positions of power. And um, Constantine would even be designated as an apostle in the eyes of some of the people. So I hope you're beginning to see <clears> that history often repeats itself, Okay. When you take advantage of a group and you act as though you're fighting for them, they give allegiance and they give uh, power and all that type of thing. And this has happened over and over and over again uh, in the history of the church because we haven't learned our lesson about keeping Christ uh, at the focus of who we follow and serve. Um, Other rulers will come and go it's christ who's resurrected right and um so um constantine to a certain extent is a practitioner of his faith um but he was hardly a model of christian charity so what i mean by that is um he did enforce his decrees by force um He is believed to have killed his wife and his son. Um, We saw that uh, in the New Testament when Herod also will kill some family members um, that uh, seem to threaten him. He uh, kills and issues a decree of genocide upon uh, young children as well uh, that's associated with the birth narrative. So people that threaten your power or your position have to be eliminated he still is doing that type of thing Um, what i think is interesting is that the christians found meaning in the fact that the roman empire now provided them um, a little bit of recognition and their hopes were political economic and cultural unity I don't think that ever does come about. However, um, they had this figurehead. Now, Constantine, ironically enough, you can see in the picture here, he's baptized by a priest by the name of Sylvester at the end of his life. Um, And the question has often been asked, why at the end of his life? And is it because he really wasn't a Christian? Is it because um, he just wanted to be sure of, of, you know, his destiny after he died? What some commentators have suggested is that um, he waited uh, because he felt that right before he died, if he got baptized, that would be how uh, the greatest number of his sins would be washed away. So I don't know if there's any truth to that or not. But what I think we see taking place under Constantine uh, is now uh, some of the Christian bishops that are in leadership positions in the church, uh, they are also being given um, the recognition of authority and power And they're going to start to merge together a little bit. Uh, Church and state are not separate. Um, And that's dangerous because what you find is that people start to come into the church uh, with political ambitions uh, more than interest in Christ or serving Christ, that type of thing. So um, after Constantine... Uh, after he dies, his nephew Julian comes to the throne, and he will be called the last pagan empire uh, emperor. He is an individual that's not a Christian. He would like to take Rome back to the old days of the Roman gods. That's why he, uh, if you in, it maybe in reading, if you ever see the name Julian the Apostate. Um, that title was given to him because he basically threw his, um, his uncle's faith away. And, uh, and, but he, he dies and, you know, as people begin to take over um, ruling the empire, now we're going to see more of an intermingling between uh, church and state. And some of that will be done because of um the uh, advancement of and importance of the papacy. That doesn't really come into real clear focus until the Middle Ages, but uh, it's beginning its seed forms now. Some thoughts? So hopefully some of this is beginning to make sense a little bit. Uh, Constantine is this individual now that is going to take the church in a direction, maybe that it wouldn't have gone down if persecution hadn't, hadn't been lifted up and and if it hadn't been given state recognition. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Okay, I mentioned a moment ago that one of the things that Constantine was dealing with was a lot of division within the church. Now, a lot of times, and I often thought of this for years, that if we could get back to the early church, we wouldn't have all the divisiveness that we see in churches <laughs> in in and around us. Um, I think the Acts 2 uh, type of description is very temporary. Let me read for you Acts chapter 2. Uh, verses forty-two through forty-seven, because I think this is how we think of the early church. All right, many times we we this is the picture that we have in our mind. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the, the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together excuse me, and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Boy, isn't that an up-and-to-the-right type of picture, right? Everything is going north. Everything is great. Until you get to chapter 5 of Acts, and Ananias and Sapphira are already deceiving people within the church, and uh, they're struck down. Uh, so, um, But we like this idealistic picture. I think I said last week, if I didn't, I'll say it again now, Even as early as the first century, there wasn't Christianity singular. There were Christianities plural. And by that, I mean there were different viewpoints and different directions that people took. And I think you see that in different books in the New Testament, especially the book of Galatians. You have a group of people that want to remain Jewish, primarily keeping all the Jewish laws. Even though they're Christian, they believe in Christ, they trust in Christ, but they want to keep everything Jewish, and Paul says they're anathema, away with them. So right there, you're beginning to see some of the schism, because Paul's going to take Judaism in a different direction. So what we find here is in the early church councils—now, by a council, what I mean is kind of like a conference, okay— So bishops will travel to a particular location and they will uh, debate and discuss different things, trying to get the orthodox, we talked about that last week, the orthodox position, which is considered the right one, the right way of looking at it. And uh, as they call together these different conferences Um, And they debate about some of the issues at the center of the very first one that is called by Constantine is trying to figure out how God, uh, how Christ is both God and human at the same time. Okay, how he's fully God, fully human, united in one person. That is the central issue. Christology is the central issue right now. So Constantine is seeing that there's different there's different theories that are beginning to uh, come up in the church. There's a, a theory called modalism that is no there's not a Trinity. There's just one God, but He wears three different hats. Sometimes He's Father, sometimes He's Son, sometimes He's Spirit. There is what's called adoptionism that Jesus was not. A god, he was a man that was adopted into special favor by God. Uh, you have a little bit of subordinationism that's going on in some circles where uh, God is still most important and Jesus is important, but he's subordinate to God. Um, you have these different theories that are going on, and so Constantine. Uh, tries to bring the bishops together and he's trying to resolve what we call the Trinity, okay? The Trinity. How does that work? The word never occurs in the New Testament. There's no word Trinity that's found in the Bible. But it's a a word that is functional. Uh, It helps to describe uh, what's going on. So as this, as you turn to certain passages in the New Testament, it seems as though God is one, and then other passages, we find that there is the elevation of Jesus as God, and then the Holy Spirit in certain passages, and how do you put it all together? Well, it's not an easy task. Theologically, it is a very difficult topic uh, to try to sort through and beside that, uh, you have other religions that are uh, beginning to push back on that. We'll talk about Muslims later, but um, Muslims and Jews find the idea of the Trinity very offensive, because they would say, you're not worshiping one God, you're worshiping three gods. And Christians would say, well, that's right, they're all God, but there's only one God, okay? So that's what the first conference uh, that is going to take place is talking about, um, and it is primarily uh, trying to make sense of this mystery called the Trinity. And unity of thought, as you see on the screen here, is important to Constantine. He wants to make sure that the empire is held together. They're already experiencing uh, politically, uh, the the breakup and the threat of barbarian uh, invasions and all kinds of other things. And so um, these believers who had been victims of persecution um, are demanding uh, that their viewpoint uh, is the right one, and that the other ones that have other viewpoints their viewpoints should be suppressed okay so there is a guy by the name of Arius a r i u s that um he's a pastor and uh he uh is in the area that i mentioned last week uh an important african city in egypt is alexandria huge library, very philosophical, all that type of thing. And um, and so he comes in uh, to conflict with this topic uh, with the bishop there. Uh, his name is Alexander. And so there's this conflict that's going on and and Constantine is trying to get it under control. So he calls people together to talk about the Trinity. Well, I mentioned a moment ago that the word isn't in the Bible. But the first council is in 325 AD at Nicaea, and I'll show you where that's at in a second. In 325 AD, uh, a couple centuries later, or a little over a century later, uh, there's going to be a a further clarification uh, at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Here's what I want you to look at. Look at this. um, Look at, and I think it's in your notes. Yeah, it's in your notes. Um, This is the way that they tried to describe the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit out out of these councils. So you have God the Father, and he is God. You have the Son, who is God, and you have the Spirit, who is God but the father is not the spirit and the father is not the son and the son is not the spirit. So they use this logic and they use um, this, this symbolism, if you will. Um, You'll see right here, um, the inner, the inner part of this, um, you know, the idea of the Trinitarian, um, Uh, emblems uh, is found in different places, kind of with that shape that's there. So the Trinity becomes this way of trying to make sense of the different Bible passages um, that seem to indicate that all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are all called God at some point in the New Testament. And yet at the same time, they're distinct. So the language that they took up was the language that is found in the Nicene Creed. And it's lengthy, but this is, this is the important part of it here. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. So stop there for a moment, John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. There's no other only begotten Son. Um, This is a unique position and a unique title. Born of the Father before all ages. Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. To be uh, the only begotten Son of God, he is also eternally begotten. So when we think of uh, time and space, there was a particular birth date that your kids came into the world. Well, Jesus is the Son of God, but he's the eternal Son of God, all right? That there is no actual birth date, okay? So then they go on and say, God, he is, Jesus, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. There's a distinction there. Do you see that? Begotten, not made. So if there's never a a point in time when Jesus came into existence, he's always been in existence, and he shares the same substance as the Father, that's what this word consubstantial means, of the same substance as the Father, and through him all things were made. So there's different passages, like in the book of Colossians, calls Jesus the firstborn of creation. It's this idea of position. It's not really a time-related thing. Uh, So these, these are the type of topics that are being talked about in the Council of Nicaea and later the Council of Chalcedon. So they begin to settle on this terminology. But what do you do with this guy Arius? Arius is an individual that said only God the Father is the only God that was never created, that Jesus was created at some point. And he he the word that is used there is God the Father was unoriginated. That is, he's always been eternal. Now, Have you ever stopped and tried to think about that? How can something not have a beginning? And it'll blow your mind when you try to think about God always existing for all of eternity past, all of eternity future. It goes beyond our human ability to comprehend that. But that's what the church settled on in the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon. And this guy Arius and the movement that he had came to be known as Arianism. And what he said is that the sun was in fact created. He's a creature. Now, he's the highest of all creatures, but he was brought into being at some point. Before everything else is created, he was brought into being. And so he is exalted, and he is to be considered God in relationship to other creatures. That is, not in relationship to eternity, but in relationship to other creatures, because he existed before all them, he should be considered God. So do you see how close this is? It's very close in language there. It's, it's there's a lot of subtlety that's going on here. Well, Arianism uh it will be condemned. And uh, it, uh, he will be expelled from his own city. He will go into exile in 321 AD. He, um, he will go into exile, uh, this uh, famous city, Alexandria. And um, so what we find is Arius is now considered not orthodox. He's now considered a heretic, okay? Because he doesn't believe the majority view. Does that make sense? So orthodoxy, <clears throat> orthodoxy means the majority view, okay? Um, but you see that he's not the only one that has an alternate viewpoint. You have some others that I mentioned a, mo- a moment ago as well. Okay, so you have some thoughts there at all? Okay, so here's the Council of Nicaea. So if uh, you look at this map here, remember we said, here's the Holy Land. Up here is Antioch of Syria. This up here, it's not on this map, but that's the home base for the Apostle Paul. He takes three missionary journeys through Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey up to the north of that right by the isthmus that goes across here um, is a little city uh, that's called Nicaea. Um, I th- think the temporary name is uh, I-Z-N-I-K. If you go across the isthmus, here is Constantinople. That becomes the uh, the center of uh, Christianity for a while. That is modern-day Istanbul. So... in 325, you have this meeting, and initially, um, the meeting was about, the central issue is about Bishop Alexander's condemnation of Arius, and should he be condemned? And that matter was settled pretty quickly. Arius, though, um, as he's called in as a defendant, um, he had a little bit of support, um, but he would not back down, and because he would not back down, he's condemned. There's kind of a side story to this that's kind of interesting. Uh, there's another church father by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius is at the Council of Nicaea, and rumor has it that, um, uh, Athanasius slapped Arius around physically at this, at this, council, you know, that type of thing for being uh, a heretic. Um, so the bishops recognize that it wasn't enough just to condemn Arius. So they go on and they continue to try to define their belief in the Trinity. And um, what they do is they come up with this Uh, Nicene Creed, which kind of becomes the basis of the Roman, Eastern, and Anglican churches as the orthodox statement about who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, uh, united in one person forever. So what they are really doing, if you want to give it a technical title, is they're trying to form their beliefs around the subject of Christology, Christology is the study of Christ, and in this debate here, what they are talking about obviously is who is Jesus. Uh, how do we how do we relate his humanity with his divinity, uh, and in what sense did Jesus become a man? Uh, did he become fully in, uh, a full man, or did he just assume a human soul, or uh, what is it? I mean, it gets really, really technical. So we might call this the Christological crisis. And it begins uh, in 325, the Council of Nicaea, but it's not resolved there. And it, this controversy continues in Constantinople, and they will have to have several councils along the way. Um the one that will kind of put the stamp on it is uh, called the Council of Chalcedon, which occurs in 451. Now, I want you to notice how long that that council is. Do you see the date here? From October 8th through November 1st. So, you know, it's like three weeks in length that they're talking about this uh, day in and day out around the clock. Uh, so it's it's something that uh, they are wrestling over. The other thing that they're talking about as well, it, and this plays into what will become one of the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church, is the question, was Mary the God-bearer? The technical term for it is called the theotokos. And did she... Uh, simply provide a body in which the logos remember john chapter one in the beginning was the word or logos uh, and the logos was with god and the logos was god did he just take up residence in this baby or was there something genetic and substantive that took place And once you begin to say yes to that, now you're beginning to see the importance of the virgin birth, that the conception by the Holy Spirit was a real conception with uh, the egg provided by Mary. And so um, there are groups that are forming around that uh, crisis as well. Uh, A guy by the name of Nestorian, believed that the divine and human nature are separate. And there was another group that was that was later called uh, monophysism, which viewed Christ as only divine. And another group came along that said, well, the body that Jesus had was only a, an appearance of a body. He didn't have a real human body because in a certain section of belief in the early church, The material world is evil. So how could Jesus have a physical body? If he is sinless, then he can't have a physical body. So are you confused yet? All these things are revolving around all these different viewpoints. And uh, Constantine is trying to get everybody on the same page so he can continue to rule without all these factions taking place. So let me stop there and see if you, if I can help you in any way. So there's a lot there that I've just said. But you don't have to remember it all. You just have to remember this, that these conflicts and debates and disagreements were a part of the church that began to decide on what books of the Bible are we going to say are inspired, and what books are we going to leave out? Uh, What are we going to use as our basis of authority? Is it going to be the Bible only, or is it going to also be uh, the Pope and the papacy and tradition? And all these different things are beginning to make a slow uh, entrance into the life of the church. And, and And I understand why. Uh, There's all these disagreements that are going on, and really, Constantine felt that when he made Christianity the state religion, he thought he was going to unify everybody, but in reality, you have all this schism that is taking place. Some thoughts, comments, questions, clarifications. So I don't I'm not here to give you a headache tonight. I just want you to see the big movement. That's all I want you to do. You can you can use the handouts that I send you to line your birdcage if you want. I but it it I, I just want you to see the big movement, okay? Because a lot of times we scratch our head. Why do they believe this? Or why do they believe that? Or why does this church do it this way or that way? Any thoughts? Okay, one more controversy for tonight. Uh, there was a bishop in Carthage. His name was Donatus. and um, he he began to throw some charges against some of the other Catholic bishops. When Diocletian was persecuting the Christians, um Donatus said that these bishops handed over the scriptures to him, and the these scriptures were burned. and he saw that as an act of apostasy. They should have hid them. They should have never given them over to Diocletian to be destroyed. So now you're beginning to see the Donatist party who want to throw accusation against other bishops that were alive at the time of Diocletian, um, they are beginning to say, we are the true church. We are the ones that are right. These others are compromisers. So one of the guys um, that kind of stood up for the Catholic bishops was a guy by the name of Augustine. He comes from an area called Hippo. And Augustine of Hippo was brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant uh, theologian, writer, uh, extensive. Wrote things like the City of God. He wrote uh, confessions. Uh, He was an individual, though, that resisted the Donatist claim. And he defended the Catholic Church And he began to support um, the use of force to suppress any rivals against these bishops. Now later, um, this will later turn into the Inquisition. But here the seeds are taking place where uh, Augustine, who is the one that develops some um, of the more notable theological things that evangelicalism believes even today goes all the way back to Augustine. Augustine was an individual that was kind of a Calvinist before there was John Calvin. So he believed in things like predestination He's the one that kind of threw around initially the idea of original sin, that uh, babies are born into sin. They're not born innocent. They're already guilty when they enter the world. So Augustine, in spite of his philosophical sophistication, his literary genius, um, he really was set apart from all of his contemporaries. But he began to put terminology in place that probably should have been debated, but wasn't because he was an intimidating type of guy. And a lot of the conceptual grammar that we use in Christianity, whether it's justification or propitiation or some other terms that he took out of the book of Romans, by Paul, um, he began to make them kind of the standard way of thinking and the orthodox way of thinking. Um, And he began to use this analogy. In his work called The City of God, he kind of pictured that humanity either falls into the mass of the godless people that are all going to hell, or in the company of the spiritual people. And that the role of the church is to build the city of God. And he develops this notion that we must get do away with the godless. So now what you're gonna begin to see with Augustine, in spite of all the great contributions that he made, he he kind of puts some seeds in place that will lead to some undesirable type of things later. And, um, you know, he is an individual that is in full force behind um, the Catholic bishop, the position of the bishop, the power of the bishop, uh, those type of things. Does that make sense to you? Anybody? Okay. Now, here's where this will take us. This will begin now to start to form the idea of papal succession. Um, It is believed that the Pope goes all the way back to Peter. Uh, The Catholic Church uh, believes that there is a succession of Popes that go all the way back to Peter based upon a few different passages of Scripture, The most famous one is, as you can see, highlighted here down in Matthew 16. When Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? Uh, He speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And uh, Jesus says, Peter, you are a rock. And upon this, I will build my church. And um, so with not only that, but... um, Jesus meets with Peter on the beach in John chapter 21 and says, um, you know, build my church. Peter, do you love me? Build my church. So that begins to catch some momentum. And there's a pope by the name of Leo I, who uh, is 400 to 461 AD, a bishop in Rome, that begins to build this idea uh, that the papacy goes all the way back to peter and he writes a letter it's called leo's tome um, that was read at chalcedon the council of chalcedon and when he read his letter the other church uh, the council fathers that were present said hey peter has spoken through leo and leo now uh, assumes this position." Of great authority. Now, it's not as though he didn't—he was grasping for power. He really did uh, help um, the Rome, the Romans at one time. In 452, he had a meeting with Attila the Hun and convinced Attila the Hun to turn back from his invasion. So, I mean, with every person, there's pluses and minuses. There's good and there's bad. Uh, and that is true with some of these characters here. Okay, I have one more slide I'm going to show you, and then we'll be done. So in this period, I think there's three turning points. Number one, which Christianity? Not There isn't one Christianity, there are Christianities, plural. Which viewpoint is going to take the dominant role? And um, Constantine helps that along by making Christianity the state religion, but these councils will define what they feel are the orthodox positions. Secondly, there is an element of exclusivism that begins to enter the church here. And what I mean by that is now Christianity assumes we are the only ones that are right. Right. And because of that, you know, all the other religions should be done away with. Number three, there were some incentives for conversion to Christianity. As we saw in the passage I read out of Acts chapter 2, they did have a strong social network. And in Acts 2, we saw a caring, uh, beneficent group that helped to support materially and emotionally uh, people uh, that were... You know, uh, in need of help, but you'll see. And here's where I'm going to close it. In passages like Romans chapter 15, there was verification that God was doing something through the church in the in the accounts of signs and wonders. So, I'll finish tonight with this. It says in Acts not Acts, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 15. It says in verses 18 and 19, it says here, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. And then verse 19 is the important one. I have said and done by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So what Paul says is going on is he's not only preaching, but there is this display of miracles that are taking place that captures the attention of people. And uh, that is a very strong motivator for people to join the church uh, as well. So, um uh, Let's stop first here and let's see if you have some questions, um, some thoughts, anything that I can clarify. I realize it's a whirlwind. Think big picture. Think big picture. Don't try to remember all the dates and names and all that type of thing. Just kind of think big picture. Any thoughts? No? Okay. So, now next week when we go into the middle ages some of this will turn very dark okay um uh, middle ages is a some boy it's a unique period of time in human history that's for sure so all right well that's where we will close shop then okay and uh thanks for being with us tonight and we'll see you next time thank, thank you sir. you're welcome night good night